All right, are we ready for the word? We might just skip straight to the word. We'll skip through. I'll come back to announcements later. I think we'll get into the word. And I started, I started a series on going through the book of Romans. Because how many of you know we need the truth of the word of God in our life? Amen? And what I love about the book of Romans, it's simple truth. What makes things complicated? Us. People. <laughs> we tend to read things and interpret things and make things harder because it's in our makeup. It's in our natural being to want to complicate things. Whereas God says, hey, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The truth I have is so simple. If only you would just open your eyes and get ready to receive. So we're going to go straight in. We're still going through chapter one, which is talking about a servant's longing. Paul wrote this uh uh, book to the Romans, and you can just see his heart, can't you? Even in the first little bit that we've read already, and as we continue on through chapter 1, his heart just longs to serve the body of Christ, to share the truth of the gospel, the good news. And so let's continue on. We're up to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. It's also on the screen for you. But the first part of chapter uh, verse 8 says this, first, oh, this is the first thing I want to do. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Wow. See, the first item on Paul's agenda was to just say how much he loves and appreciates the body of Christ. He's taken care of the from and to parts of the letter, right, in the part that we looked at last time. But Paul lingers in this introduction for a while because he just can't even find the words to express how much he cares about his listeners, the people reading this letter. It's like that boy, I don't know if you've, if you've had children, you'll get this, or you've probably seen it in people, but uh, I don't know, I've got Melody and Timothy, and, and particularly Timothy, because Melody's all mature now, she's a teenager, so we don't do uncool things now because we've grown up. But Timothy's still just turned 10. And he'll do like an artwork or something. And he just can't wait to show me. He's just like, you've got to come and look and you've got to. And as soon as I walk in the door, I'm like, well, I've got, let me just get things. No, you've got to come right now. You've got to see it right now. Just drop everything. So he's like that boy who just can't wait to show his parents this incredible creation. Well, this is what Paul's like. And he's like this in regards to the gratitude he wants to share towards the people that he's writing to, whom he loves so dearly. Yeah, the Bible tells us we ought to always pray and not lose heart. That's what the Bible says. And the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray because they say how much they saw how much that Jesus valued prayer. Because often he would go away and have his moments with him and his heavenly Father. So we too ought to ask God to teach us how to pray. You know, one of the best signs of a right understanding of grace, and that's what Romans talks about a lot, is grace. But the sign that you understand grace is that you have a desire to pray, a yearning in your spirit, a longing to, to pray, and that you value prayer. And I'm not talking about that, oh, I'm on the run and a few little words to the Lord and, and that's, that's okay, I'm not knocking that, but I'm talking about deep, thoughtful prayer, you know, maybe on your knees if you're able. It's a little harder as you get older, I've learned, uh, to get on your knees, but you can try. Uh, but, you know, in your bedroom, in your secret place, wherever that is where you go to meet with the Lord, that earnest desire to pray. It's actually such a privilege that us Christians have that we can pray to our Lord. Do you agree? What a privilege it is that our Creator, the one who made all, we can pray to and communicate with and have fellowship with. He's not this angry, aggressive figure in the heavenlies that's moving you around like a chess piece and you don't get a say in the matter. Like he's not this mean, nasty, authoritative figure, but he's a heavenly Father who loves us so much. See, Paul wanted to rescue the Romans from their bondage to the law and lead them into an understanding of grace through faith. And Paul's prayers were not so much pious, like, look at me, I'm praying, you know, we've probably all met that person that 
maybe praise in such a way that they use big words you don't understand or, you know, shining a light on themselves as they say what they say. But rather, Paul's intensity in his prayers were evidence of fire in his soul. He had a fire, just this deep burning desire to serve Jesus and point people to him. The second part of uh, verse 8 says this, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's cool. Here we see the object of Paul's passion, spreading the good news everywhere. He doesn't say, I thank God for you because you got me an awesome birthday present, or I thank God for you because you've looked after me financially, or I thank God for you because of the celebrations we've shared. No, he says, I thank God for you because of your faith, and that it's getting spread worldwide. It's world-class faith. He's thrilled that the word of faith is getting spread. That's what he's excited about. And when we consider how much of the world that Paul didn't know, perhaps there's a hint of exaggeration in what he said. Now, I thank God for you because your faith is spreading all over the universe. That's kind of like the equivalent today, isn't it? Because we can spread things around the world pretty quickly now, can't we? Thanks to social media and online, you know, world can travel, news can travel from the other side of the world. I remember when um, I was in England when Princess Diana died. And that news, I think it took about five minutes, somebody timed it, five minutes to get all around the world. And that's a fair way to go. It's even quicker now. So news travels quickly. So perhaps Paul was exaggerating a little bit here because he didn't know every part of the world. But he's kind of like that fisherman. Who's been fishing? And I caught a fish and it was this. Big. <laughs> Come on, we've all exaggerated about something before, haven't we? We've all maybe added a few zeros or, you know. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verses 9 to 10 says this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. See, the only time Paul used the phrase, um, God is my witness, was when there might have been some reason for the listeners to doubt. It's kind of like that Christmas card you get from that person you talk to one, two times a year, and it says, I'm praying for you. Do we have a bit of doubt there? Are you really praying for me? Are you really, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. But Paul puts it in a way that as God is my witness. Because you've got to remember, he hasn't been with the Roman people for some time. So it would be quick and easy for them to go, oh, yeah, whatever, that's just waxing eloquence a little bit, but he's actually praying for these people. So that's why he's used God as my witness. Also, Paul was about to leave for Jerusalem when he wrote this letter, but he hadn't visited Rome. He may have thought the Roman Christians would think that he didn't care much about them because he's going to all these other places and not coming to Rome, and hence he's writing this letter. But he then told the Roman Christians that he was praying God would open the way for him to visit them. I genuinely desire to want to come, but I'm following the will of God. Paul wasn't relying on his own will. He was relying on God's will. It says in Philippians 2.13, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Everything I do, I want to do unto the Lord as he leads me. And fortunately, God answers his prayer and he does make it to Rome. That's further down track. But see, what Paul says concerning his prayer life is evidence of his, of his religious history. You know, as a former Pharisee, because that's what he was, uh, Paul would have been used to prayer rituals, I guess, following those kind of patterns. As a devout Jew, he might have spent several hours a day in prayer. Because that's what they did. So prayer wasn't foreign to him. 
Let's um, talk about prayer just for a moment. I want to talk about how the triune nature of God, we know that God is three parts in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How does this work in our prayer lives? Well, firstly, prayer is learned. It's just like when you were a toddler and you were learning your first words. And um, I got in a bit of trouble. I was with the kids all the time and I'm like, Dad, 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 trying to get them to say Dad. And of course, Neat would love them to say Mum as their first word. Mum, Mum. But have you noticed mm is a little harder for kids? Like, D is a little easier sound. So I've already got an advantage. <laughs> but with both our kids, I'm like, Dad, Dad. And both our kids' first words were Dad. <laughs> like I said, I got into a little bit of trouble. Then I very hastily taught them the mm, mum, quick say mum, make her happy. Happy wife, happy life. So it's like when you say your first word and you're so pumped. Just said that. That's so cool. Well, it's the exact same with our prayer language. We learn our prayer language. And we learn a few words, we get applauded when we're little. It's the same when we pray. We begin to build sentences, and it's the same with prayer. Prayer is our method of communication with God. Jesus, our high priest and mediator, hears the prayers of all believers. That's what the Bible teaches us. And he delivers them. Like he's the postie kind of thing. He's got the envelopes. And he takes them to the Father. And we pray because we have a Father who will consider our requests and answer them according to his divine will. You see, the mistake we often make is, oh, my prayer didn't get answered, so God mustn't be there. He's not listening. But how do we know that what we're praying for is what God wants for us? That's where faith comes in and we trust our God. So Jesus the Son is delivering the prayers of faith to the Father. The Holy Spirit empowers the believer's prayer life. So when the Word of God encourages us to pray, always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, 18, it points us to the reality that God's Spirit lives in us and prays through us. See, God helps us further by providing the Psalms. Who loves the Psalms? The book of Psalms is great. If you're struggling with your prayer life, can I encourage you to open the book of Psalms? Because it's a book of prayer. The Psalms act as almost a tutorial showing us the purpose of prayer, the intimacy of prayer, and the potential of life bathed in prayer. So Paul often quotes the Psalms in his letters as well. The, the reason I like Psalms is because they often start with what's called a lament. Woe is me, navel-gazing, this is all happening, my enemies are around me, I'm about to be destroyed, and God, I can't hear you, you're so far away. But then it turns around, and then faith kicks in. And isn't that a picture of our lives? I mean, I'd love to tell you that as your pastor, I'm always walking around full of faith and positive, and, and nothing negative ever happens in my life. And every, But no, let's be real, folks. <laughs> let's all be real. We have our hard days. We have our challenging times. We have our navel-gazing moments. We all do it. Oh, be, oh, you didn't hear what they said to me or how they treated me or, you know, and they're all against me and, you know, all I want to do is serve you and love you and all this stuff's happening and where, 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 where. That's what we're doing. But then my prayer for you is it turns around as it does in the Psalms, but God, you are full of mercy. You are full of grace. And Lord, even though I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders in this moment, I trust you because I know you can say, peace be still in the midst of the storm. Yeah. And so I lift up my eyes from my navel gazing. and It's not about me, but it's about you and how good you are. And even though I'm having the worst week of my life, yet I will praise you. That's an awesome prayer life. If you can turn it around and go to that place. Verse 11 to 13 says this, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also just as among the other Gentiles. So, it's been way too 
long. That's what he's saying. It's been way too long since I've been with you that I just haven't been able to. You know, in order to interpret this passage accurately, we need to step out of our technological age because that's what we're in right now. We need to step out of that age with, you know, the ability to communicate within a second. Uh, worldwide communication can happen. But we need to step into the Apostle's sense and wear his shoes for a moment. Paul wrote, I long to see you. He meant he had a yearning that could not be fully satisfied apart from a face-to-face meeting. You know, we just get so satisfied now. Oh, we've got video calls, we've got texting, we've got the ability to communicate real easy. But there's just something about being in the room with people. You know, I love that we stream our service and hello to people online today, and that's great. Uh, But man, there's just nothing like being in the room. And and people that are streaming, for whatever reason, they don't live in Stanthorpe or they can't be here. That's okay. We're not having a go at you today. But there's just something about being face-to-face, being in the room. Jesus taught his disciples, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So Paul had been given much. He carried a lot. And the apostle held himself accountable to share his spiritual wisdom and his wealth with the people of God as well as with the pagans, everyone. He didn't pick and choose. His message was for all. And this was an expression of humility. Because he could have gone cultural and said, well, I'm just going to go talk to Jews. I'm just going to... But he was Jew, Gentile, and everyone in between. This message is for you. Let's keep going. Verses 14 to 15. I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul is an eager beaver. Who's heard that saying before? Eager beaver. Paul is eager. He's keen. And he explains, I guess, his covenant responsibilities. God's made this promise with him, and he has a responsibility because when you carry a lot, much is expected of you. Well, it uses the word debtor. Now, a debtor is uh, it can be it's translated um, as obligated, like you're obligated. So you have a debt. When you have a debt, you owe someone finance. But in this case, it's like I have an obligation. I've been given this good news. And now I must share the good news. I have this obligation, this commitment. This person, a debtor is a person under obligation. And that's what he calls himself. And Paul considers himself a debtor because of the burden and weight of what God has put on his life. I must share this with everybody. You know, when we're saved, we're all called to be ambassadors for Christ. Amen? And so all of a sudden, we are now debtors. We now have this a burden on our heart to share what God has done in us. And the reason we are a debtor is because we could never pay the price that was paid for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me to be forgiven of our sin, be forgiven of our mistakes, our wrong way of living, our poor choices. And we could never pay that debt ourselves. So we are forever indebted to Christ. But here's the cool thing. He doesn't hold us under the thumb like a bank does when we owe them money. But he says, go and share the good news. I've made you free so that you can share this news with others. We have this debt, this this, uh, obligation to share the good news of Christ. So if you've given your life to Jesus, you have an obligation. It's not just the pastor up here sharing a message or... You know, it's not just Deb sharing your testimony. All of us have an opportunity in our world to reach people for Christ. And however that looks. For some of us, it's hundreds of people because we have the anointing of an evangelist and we'll reach hundreds, maybe thousands. And God bless you, that's awesome. But for some of us, it's our neighbour. For some of us, it's just one person. Ask yourself that question today under the obligation that is on you. Not from me, it's from God. Because he's radically saved you and made you a new creation. Who am I, Lord, to share this good news with? Who am I going to have the opportunity to bring to the knowledge of who you are? What a privilege it is. 
to carry and have this obligation to share the good news with others. You know, when you give your life to the Lord, there's a cost. Before I go on, there's a cost. And Jesus warned his disciples. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So don't turn into navel-gazing when people turn against you and the world hates you because you're a Christian. And, you know, don't go buy the bigot T-shirt. Everyone called you a bigot because you've got Christian beliefs. The world hated Jesus. That's why they hate you. Because you're an ambassador for him. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. You know, we ought to remember and be encouraged by the truth that if the world hates us, it is because the world is ignorant of Christ's love. That's what you need to have in your spirit. Don't take it personally. People don't have a vendetta against you. It's against Christ, whom you represent. All right, verse 16. For I am not ashamed. We love this one, don't we? Not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> We're not ashamed. Even in this world that we live in, this dark, dismal, scary place where Christians are called bigots and, you know, they lose their jobs and they're terminated and whatever else, judged, humiliated. Shout from the rooftops. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to establish clearly in the hearts of the people reading this book that he is not in any way ashamed of the gospel. Not in any way not even in the capital city of the Roman Empire. He'll shout the name of Jesus in the streets. And he explains why, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So key. The word power speaks of God's quenchless energy to transform all believing human beings into citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's power, folks. That is power. This transformation begins with the new birth and continues day after day, year after year, until we finally meet Jesus face to face. And who's pumped for that day? Yes. Come on. Yes. Pastor Ben Kent was here in January. Some of you were here and would have heard his message. And he talked about the compass and pointing true north. And we know that a compass is an instrument used for showing direction, right? It's swinging magnetic needle, which always points north, and it can keep you from going in the wrong Direction. Well, a compass is an excellent tool when you're lost. The gospel is the Christian's compass. If we live the gospel, if we love the gospel, if we continue to trust the gospel, it will eventually lead us home to the place where God's called us to be. And, and that is God's new covenant, his promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Now that is the good news. I don't know what you're going through today, but if all you did was walk into the room to hear that God's never going to leave you, God's never going to forsake you, He's never going to let you wander off, if you've given your heart to Him, He's, he's got His hands on you. And yes, we can rebel, yes, we can turn away, but God doesn't go anywhere. God doesn't go anywhere. Let me encourage you, return to this starting point frequently. Letting it do the work of the compass and positioning you for true north, which is chasing after all things that are godly, all things that are Christ. That's the direction that God wants you to be heading in. Verse 17, for, it, uh, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here we're all brought to our predicament. This is where we're outlining mankind's folly. Because of the fall, our relationship with God has been fatally damaged and needs to be reconciled. We need something to happen to bring us back to the Father. The gospel is God's way of extending his grace, his love, his mercy, his only way of restoring our souls. And it is through the restoration that we receive absolute righteousness from God. We can't achieve it in our own strength. We can't 
make it to this place without Jesus. Because we do not deserve the wonderful gift. We can't do anything to earn it. God elects to offer it to his fallen creation. We've all made a mistake. We've all sinned. We've gone astray just like the sheep that goes astray. And we've all been given the gift of faith. And that's why it says from faith to faith. We gain eternal life and relationship with our Creator and it costs us nothing. What a deal. We've just got to believe in Jesus Christ. Confess that He's our Lord. Believe that He was raised from the dead. He's done all the work. How good is it? You know, to show the Christians in Rome that this is not a new upstart doctrine, you know, oh, it's just a new little fad that's hit the town. Paul quotes a famous Old Testament passage from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. It's in chapter 2, verse 4. And just note, this is important, the unity that this brings between the Old Testament and the New. Because you get people on that bandwagon of the either or, but it's all encompassing. The Word of God is a complete document. And the New Testament is confirmed by the Old. The Old is confirmed by the New. And you can't tell me different. Let's keep going. Verses 18 to 20. Righteousness for God. For the wrath of God. Okay, this is the exciting part. (laughs) Is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The great devastation. So Paul moves into verse 18 that we just read to a point that is critical to understanding this whole deal. And he's making a historical statement referring back to what happened in Genesis when mankind fell and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He uses the word suppress to describe what people in their wickedness do with truth. If people suppress the truth, obviously they have some knowledge of the truth. You can't tell me that you can't walk outside and look at creation and think there's no God. How can that be made from a bang? Seriously. Seriously. All by chance. Even the person who's like the staunchest antagonist against Christians, when they have a preference and and you're given a choice, would you choose to be a speck of dust created from that by chance? It's like somebody sneezed and out you came. That's a bit gross, sorry. But you're like, like, it's just by chance, this speck of dust and bang, there was a bang and all of a sudden, there was you. Or, would you prefer to believe in a God that created everything on purpose, on time, and and that your life is dripping with purpose because you were created in the image of God in your mother's womb? Which one do you want to believe? Like, I'm sorry, non-Christian, but far out, I do not understand how you can choose to be a speck of dust and by chance and, oh, what a fluke, I'm here. I can do what I want, I can do... I don't get it, I don't get it. I don't know how... By given that choice, could you be someone that is vaporised by chance or you're dripping with purpose? Which one would you choose? Even not being a Christian, like, let's just use your brain for a minute. What are you going to prefer? You want to have purpose on your life. You want to know that you're here for a reason. You want to know that there's destiny. You want to know... Anyway. Give me a bit stirred up. I want to be a booger out of a nose. Come on. Psalm 19 says. This is church. Get serious. The word of God. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day out of speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Come on. You can't look outside and tell me there's no God. The psalmist is expressing in poetry the same truth that Paul is expressing uh, in the letter to the Romans. Creation shouts to us that God exists, and we hear those shouts, but we may try to ignore them 
and put off our acknowledgement of them because life's hard. And, and so I think everyone, because we are all made in the image of God and we make choices and maybe we make choices that we don't believe in God. But that doesn't mean that a God didn't make you. It just means you're not acknowledging him. So what everyone is doing that doesn't believe in God, they are suppressing the truth. I could not potentially understand the physics of an aeroplane. I don't. I hated science at school. Sorry, Ian. But I just, I just did not do science. And so I don't really, I mean, I kind of understand how a plane works and that, but let's say I didn't have a clue. Does it stop the plane from flying? No. Just because I don't believe in or understand how it all works? No. no. The plane zooms. Hopefully lands as well. <laughs> how is it different with God? Well, I don't believe in God, so none of that applies to me. Well, I'm sorry, but it does. Yeah. And you're just suppressing the truth. You're in denial because you don't want to surrender to something because I want to control my life. All right, we're wrapping up. We're getting towards the end. Romans 21, chapter 1, 21 to 25. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. What were we thinking? <laughs> Paul points out that despite the knowledge of God people receive through creation, because it's there, you just got to open your eyes and see it, they didn't act on it. They suppress it. They don't want to know about it. So they don't give him glory. They don't thank him because they're suppressing the truth. Their minds are clouded and their hearts are in dark places. And they began worshipping idols instead of God. And people who reject God become futile in their thinking and in their hearts because everything is clouded. Because when you suppress the truth, there's just confusion. I don't really know what's going on, but this feels good, so let's do that. They begin to set other things in place of God. You ask anyone, they'll believe in something. It may not be God, but it's whatever they've chosen to make their idol and their thing. You know, the world today is the LBGT, ABCD, all of that. That's their God. The rainbow flags and all of this stuff. That's, that's what they put in that place where God should be. God turns people who reject him over to their sinful desires to reap the retribution of choosing to live in sin and for sinful pleasure. Some people misinterpret the message of grace and they think it's going easy on sin. God does not go easy on sin. He does not take it lightly. God judges sin in part by allowing it to run its course. Because the whole idea of sin, if God just stopped sin, well, would we need God? Because we would live perfect robotic lives and we would never do anything wrong. Sin is in the world and our response to sin should be to run to the Father and ask for forgiveness. Yet it's the resulting sense of darkness that often opens our hearts to God's holy light. How many people do you know that they have to get right to the bottom of deepest of deep and then finally they turned to their creator? God allows that sin to run its course so that the person comes to themselves and realizes, I've been putting an idol in that place when really I should have been praising God and putting him in that rightful place in my life. So therefore, we see the book of Romans is beautiful. There is both grace and mercy in the midst of judgment. So does God judge sin? Absolutely. But he wants you to run from that place into his arms of love and he'll accept you. And it doesn't matter how far you go down that journey, that track of sin. God is always there with his arms open, ready to receive you back unto himself. That is what grace and mercy is.
that's the God that we serve. A good, good Father that never turns us away. Verse 26 to 27. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. This is takes two, the tango. I guess I should have put to tango up there. We come to the second point where God says this. He says, God gave them up. That's the statement that he makes. The first was back just in verse 24. This time Paul says, God gave them up to immorality, sexual immorality. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and, and, and then exchanged natural sexuality for unnatural sexuality. So instead of using the normal Greek words for men and women here, he uses the words for males and females. He uses these words. And, and ironically, humans are the only ones that mix the genders. You've never seen two male dogs get it on. You've never seen animals do that. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, you, you've, you've not seen two cats. Okay. That's, that's random. That's random. 99% of the time, animals don't do this. Man has made a choice to turn away from God and for self-pleasure and for self-desire. And that's what's going on. See, it's important to understand that depraved behaviour always begins with a lie. Love is love. It feels good. Like, we deserve to have a marriage partner. We deserve... It all begins with a lie. And Satan is the father of lies. Amen? That's who he is. Let's call him out for what he is. And when we choose darkness over light... We exchange God's truth for Satan's lie. We suppress the truth, the lies come in and fill that void. And while Adam and Eve were in paradise, a sinless environment, they believed Satan's lie. And in so believing became liars themselves. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's just like a pig in its wallet. Look around the world we live in, folks, and everything that I just read. And if we did a tick and flick chart, I think there'd be a lot of ticks. This is a statement of judgment. Don't tell me my God doesn't judge sin. Also, don't tell me my God doesn't have grace to forgive and embrace out of that life. It's not either or. This is a statement of judgment. God didn't just let people be depraved. God, as an act of judgment, caused them to be depraved. The fact that people become filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness as it goes on, is evidence that they have rejected God. Because I'm telling you, if you've got Christ in you, those things can't coexist. Because Christ makes us a new creation and those things are forgiven and gone. And the desire for that life leaves you. When you are truly converted and you turn from your sin and you repent and say, God, I'm so sorry. If it's a genuine conversion, you leave that life behind. And you pursue the things of God. Now, can relapse happen and is there grace on the journey? Of course there is. That's where the church and the body of Christ come in. And we just wrap our arms of love around people and love them to fullness of Christ as an expression in their heart. So God here, Paul is demonstrating the existence of sin. It's very much there. And the reality that human righteousness doesn't exist. 
can't achieve and overcome those things in our own strength. Imagine this, a boy and a girl who are walking down a road together. Imagine their hands brush. It's all romantic. Maybe there's some slow... I've got to look at my age now. I was about to say some slow Barry White music. <laughs> and it's just like everything's in slow motion and the hands brush. And I'm not sure it's probably Justin Bieber today or something. But imagine their hands brush and eventually they find themselves holding hands. Oh. And this happens because there's an attraction between them. Now imagine the same girl is ironing. She's ironing her clothes before going out with the boy. You've got to get the clothes crease-free and all of that. And her hand touches the hot iron. It's a bit different, isn't it? She jerks it away. It's like, stop! Who's done that? Okay, confession time. I have a little belly here. And there's been times where I've ironed and forgotten that the belly is sticking out the room. Stop! And you get the little... There's other men in this room that have done that, surely. Is it, or is it just me? Uh, just me. I just had confession time and no one's empathising with me at all. Hey, I was lying. That's a good thing. Anyway, the girl jerks her hand away because it's hot. The fact that she jerks her hand away shows antagonism, not attraction. Okay? It's like, oh, that's hot. I don't like that. Paul is saying, human beings prove they are lost because they jerk away from God. When they come into contact with him, they, they, they jerk away. They're antagonistic about it. When they come into contact with his presence, they just want to run. Human beings are sinners and are not righteous no matter what they pretend. We can put up the appearance, can't we? But people are not righteous because they have rejected God. The challenge today is what is our response to his presence? If we want to run from his presence, oh man, I want to pray for you. That God would just, I don't know what's going on in your world, but there's something that's going on that's trying to keep you away from his presence. But if you want to embrace his presence, oh, that's the place we want to be. Can we just run? Can we just have church every day? Can we just uh, have somebody, uh, Caroline said, oh, I loved a Sunday night meeting that we had a few weeks ago. It was incredible. Come to the next one in term two. We'll let you know the dates. But it was amazing just to soak in his presence and just to just to love on him, on him and, and allow him to breathe into us. And, and if you want to run to that kind of thing, that's the place you want to be. Because that's where the fullness of joy is found in his presence. Have a look at the screen as we come to a close.
That was cool. <laughs> I'm so glad we have the King of Kings. The name above every name. I'm so glad we have a King that, yes, he does judge. He looks at our lives and he sees brokenness and failure and mistakes. But the judgment isn't final. We have the opportunity to be redeemed. And we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. His name is Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that's too hard for him to release you off. The mistake that we make is we think, well, no, it is too hard. That God is too busy with other people to care about me. That, that God just has other things he wants to put his attention on. I'm not important. I'm insignificant. What I've gone through doesn't matter. But I'm here to tell you today to that person that thinks that, that God loves you. And he wants to release you from those thoughts. Those are lies. What did we say earlier? The enemy, Satan, is the king. He's the father of lies. He's the king of deceit. But there's a name that is greater than the name of Satan. And he overcomes. When he died on the cross, he went down into hell itself and he took the keys. He said, you're defeated. And he rose again victorious, conquering sin and death. That's worth celebrating. matter what you've done, it doesn't matter the, the mistakes you've made, God forgives you. I guess the question and challenge is, do you forgive yourself? And that's probably one of the hardest things we ever have to do. Would you all stand with me? We're going to come to a close. I've gone over time today, but man, <laughs> the roast will be all right in the oven for a few extra minutes. Just be extra crunchy. <laughs> I don't know where you were at or how you've walked into the room today, but I know this message was for people in the room that needed encouraging today. That yes, our God judges, but our God also has grace and mercy. His arms of love are so open wide to receive you today. Despite what you've done, what you've been through and the mistakes you've made, God loves you. And I want to pray for you. So if you just want more of God's presence in your life, just lift your hands. Just lift your hands to heaven. Because God is really willing and able to receive you. He just wants you to say yes to him. He's looking for response. And this is our response. We worship you, God. So I pray for every single person with their hands raised in this place today, showing their desire for more of you. Lord, I pray that you would increase the sense of your presence, that you would increase that awareness of your grace and your mercy, that you would remind each person under the sound of my voice that nothing is too hard for you to forgive. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to forgive ourselves, the mistakes that we've made, the, 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 the wrong choices, the things that we're just so deeply ashamed of, God, cover them with your blood today. Release us from that burden. Father God, have your way in our lives. Move in power. Touch people in the room today with a sense of your presence. That they may have walked in lost, disillusioned, confused, concerned, but they're leaving victorious because of what you've done. We choose by faith to lean on everything that you've done for us. Our faith is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we take our eyes away from our circumstance in this moment. And we fix them on you, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, our name above every name. God, we worship you and we honour you. And we believe for you to move in our lives like you've never moved before. Lord, may there be a sweeping of your presence across the room people receive power from you today, power to forgive themselves, power to be released from condemnation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're in the room and you've not responded to Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to him, maybe you've 
chosen to follow him before, but now you just know you're in that place where you need to rededicate your life to him. I want to pray with you. So if you need Jesus in your life, if you want to respond to him today and say yes to Jesus, you lift up your hand right now. And we're going to pray as a church together. Yeah, hands going up. pray, but you know what? It's, there's no magic in the prayer. Everything is coming because of your response to Christ today. The prayer is on our lips, but it's what happens in our heart, our response to Him. So church, let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you died for us. You died for me. You're a personal God and you care about me. So I declare with my lips, you are my Lord. I turn from my old way of living and I embrace the new. I know that you conquered sin and death. I believe it in my heart. So from this day forward, I choose to follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we praise God and thank him for making a difference in the lives of people today?